what's your routine when you're preparing for company to come over? Ever, ever host people in your home, right? Some of you who host a missional community or you have parties or friends come over. Or, what are some of the things that you do to be prepared? You think through some of those. You're running around. You're trying to... You're, you're thinking, okay, should I vacuum or should I just pick up some of the, the crumbs that my children left on the floor and just kind of, you know, maybe rub a few of them in and go, okay, good enough. You know, I don't know how you, how you do that. Um, what's the big thing? What's, what's, the, what's one of the number one things that you think about? The bathroom, right? Got to make sure that that bathroom is, is clean and tidy. I mean, at least that, that's kind of how it is at our house. Um, and so we're scampering around, we're vacuuming, we're straightening things up. What are some of the things that you typically do? Oh no, here's all this clutter. Uh, you just grab it up and you just throw it in a drawer and you slam that and you put a lock on it. Or you, you throw it at the back of a closet and you shut that and then you break the doorknob off and you, and you're, you say, I'm sorry, friends, you can't go in there. We have a broken doorknob. You know, just... You do all of those crazy things, right? Because you're concerned to be prepared. Now, if it's holidays and you've got family coming over and they're going to spend some time, then you're probably going to do a few more things. You're going to change the sheets on the guest bed. You know, you're going to, you might actually do the vacuuming. You're going to enlist your children. And if it's like our house, it's do this, do that, uh, uh, uh. And then the doorbell rings and you're like, welcome to our home. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the way it is. You, you, you get worked up, you're, you're, in, you're, you're concerned with being prepared. You want to be ready. Because some people that you love are coming. Some people who are important to you are coming. You want to be a good host. You want your guests to feel welcome. You want your family to feel at ease. Etc., etc., right? Well, being prepared is what this particular passage of Mark is all about. We learn that John appeared, this man named John, we'll talk about who he is. Some of you might already have a clue about him. But he appears in order to prepare the people. Alright? So let's look at this passage together. We're just going to look at the first, um, those, those verses 2 through 8. And um, as we do so, um, I would, want to invite you, if you would, would you please stand with me one more time before we get into the preaching? And let's just stand in, in uh, uh, reverence to God's Word as we, as we come before it and, and as we stand in uh, honor of it today. Um, math, or excuse me, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning right there, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair 
and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Would you be seated? John appeared, first of all, as a prophet of God to come. John appeared as a prophet of God to come. He, he starts off after that brief heading we saw in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He immediately jumps in to his story, this message, this good news that he's got, and says, it is written. Now, Mark's original readers, um, if we understand tradition rightly, and I... And I we don't have, I don't think we have any reason to believe otherwise that Mark wrote his gospel while in Rome and he wrote it as a partner of Peter. Peter was ministering in Rome and before his death, before his martyrdom in Rome around 65 AD, Mark is hearing the message that Peter is preaching and proclaiming about Jesus, this good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is there in Rome and he's, he's receiving this message and he's starting to collect it together and he either wrote it all down right before or right after Peter was martyred. And he's writing in the context of Rome. He's writing in the context of this Greco-Roman world. Um, what, what the scholars, what we, the term we use is Hellenistic instead of Jewish. It's Hellenistic. It's like the Greeks. It's that culture. It's that tradition rather than the Jewish tradition per se. And so he's saying it is written in Isaiah the prophet. It's kind of an unusual thing for Mark to write, in fact. It probably doesn't seem all that unusual to you. The Gospel of Mark is right there in our New Testament. It's right there in the Bible. Most of our Bible is the Old Testament. Most of the Bible is the it is written parts. It doesn't seem that unusual to us. But as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to find that Mark rarely, if ever, quotes the Old Testament Scripture. In fact, this is the one time where he puts the Old Testament Scripture on features it, puts it on the billboard. He, he flashes it and he says, this is so important that even though my Roman hearers are really not, they're not going to be all that impressed by Old Testament fulfillment because they don't probably know the Old Testament very well. But it's so important that I'm going to put this in here. They need to know that there's a connection to this historical um, tradition, this historical background, that this really happened. In the history of the gospel, it has its roots in the Old Testament. But one thing they would have been impressed by is that little formula, it is written. So, they may not have known where it came from. The prophet Isaiah may not have meant much to the original readers, but they would have known it is written. That's important. Because they would have said stuff like, it is written in this philosopher, or that philosopher wrote this, or that 
old Greek writer wrote this. These are important things. These are, these are things that ground our understanding of, the light, of life and existence. And so he does that. He starts out, Mark starts out with this, it is written. And what does he say? Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Well, we've got to look back to the very last prophet, the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1. That's a good one to write down. Write down Malachi 3.1. You might want to go back as, as, you're, as you're researching Hosea and you're reading over the prophet Hosea, you might want to also read this prophet Malachi who has a lot to say about the coming of God in the world. And in Malachi 3.1, God is, is pronouncing that He's going to send His messenger. His messenger is going to prepare the way for the Lord to come. In Malachi chapter 3, if you read that in context, it isn't necessarily a happy coming. It's not like the Lord was coming to spend the holidays with His people. The Lord was coming to judge their rebellion. The Lord was coming to judge their unrighteousness. That was the context of that original message. And so that's something important to think about. Okay, Mark's using this. He's quoting Malachi 3.1. And he's quoting a passage in which the Lord is coming to judge. What should that awaken in, in the hearers, in Mark's hearers? What should that awaken in us? God has the authority to come and judge us? Absolutely. What does that mean for, for uh, us and for the ministry? Well, let's look, at the, let's look at the other one first before we answer that completely. Let's get a full picture here. We also have Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. There, Yahweh, the Lord, God Himself, is saying, There's, I'm sending somebody to prepare my way. I myself am coming. And I am coming in Isaiah chapter 40 to bring comfort to my people, my people who have been lost, my people who are in exile again, my people who are in slavery again, and I'm coming to be there for them. That's a big deal. So we see both of these, both of these passages are working together to create this, this emphasis on one, the prophet who God is sending into the world. The one who's preparing the way. The one who's the messenger. The one who's a herald or a proclaimer. He's the one who announces. But what is he announcing? He is announcing God is coming. God Himself is about to make an appearance. God Himself who has authority to judge people. But God Himself who's going to care for His, his own people and comfort them, and bring them restoration. So who is the messenger? Behold, I send my messenger who's going to prepare the way. Well, we see in the context, verse 4, it is John. John is appearing. It's, it's John who is the messenger. It's John who is, and check this out, John who is 
a prophet like the prophets of old. In the time that, that um, Jesus made his appearance, at the time that John appeared on the scene here, the prophets had been silent for 400 years. It had been centuries since God had sent somebody with a message to his people. And I think a lot of them were probably thinking, when is this prophet going to come? We have these prophecies in Malachi and in Isaiah and in other places. When is God going to come and speak to us again? When is this prophet going to appear on the scene and, and give us a message of comfort? Give us a message or bring a message of judgment to those who are rebelling? When is God going to come and make things right again? John appeared as a prophet of God to come. It's John who is this one who's going to prepare the way for God. But note, notice the emphasis on it. John is significant in the story. He's absolutely significant to the story. But Mark chooses not to expound on his life. We, we don't have... We don't have his birth announcement like Luke does, Luke chapter 1. We, we don't have his uh, birth and his childhood. We don't have details of his message. You get a lot more details um, of what John spoke in, in Luke chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 3, in John chapter 1. We, we get very little details about John here. Why? Because John is only important relative to the God that he announced. That's it. That's where his importance was. John was important because he announced God. Because he had a, a mission. Because he had a purpose. And he was content with that. He, he himself said in verse 7, I am unworthy. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John's witness in the other Gospels, especially in John, where he reiterates this, this, uh, this truth. He says in John chapter 1, when they come and they ask him, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. You know, I come, I come with the power of God, with a message from God, but I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the ultimate one that you're looking for. He downplays himself and he elevates God. He says, no, I'm not the one that you're looking for. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. He says in John chapter 3, look, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John, just, just by looking at this brief passage and seeing where, where John fits into God's story, Bridging Old and New Testament. Being, he's, a, he's a prophet in the tradition of the Old Testament. John's witness, John's message, John's person, who he was, 
helps us to see that he was not a celebrity pastor. He wasn't looking for more likes or more followers. He wasn't trying to build brand recognition. But what he did do was seek to elevate God. He did that by pointing out he's coming. Be prepared. Be prepared. And here's, here's how he asked them to be prepared. Indicating to them, pointing out their need. If you knew Malachi 3 and you read this passage, and probably if Peter was preaching to Hellenistic listeners, he'd probably explain a little bit of this and maybe illustrate it for them in, in a way they would understand. Hey, how many of you have your life all together? Not very many hands should go up, right? Well, guess what? That's not going to cut it. That is not going to cut it for a holy, perfect God who is going to come and He's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's not going to cut it for us to be incomplete, for us to have those little secret sins that we sweep under the rug or lock in a drawer or throw in the back of a closet. It's not going to work for us. John's goal was to elevate God by pointing out that we need to be reconciled to the God who is coming. So what about us? Our significance? Do we find our significance in what we've achieved? Maybe like, maybe like John who had this really amazing ministry. When you, when you see his life in full and you, and you also bring in the witness of the other Gospels. Wow, this guy, he, he was like a mega pastor. I mean, he was a celebrity. But it never went to his head because his greatest significance as ours is in our relationship to our God. Our greatest significance is in the identity that we get from Him. And our greatest goal in life, is it to elevate ourselves or to elevate God? It is actually in finding our purpose in Him. And so, as we look at this, we see that. We, we see that John appeared as a prophet of God to come. It should cause us to consider our own place with God. Are we prepared? Prepare the way. Make his path straight. John came proclaiming. Are we ready for them? What should we do, in fact, to prepare for God? Well, that's the second, the second part of this of this message is that John appeared to offer grace from God. To offer grace from God. Here's one of these tricky things as a, as a uh, pastor and trying to, trying to figure out how to, how to preach the Word. Uh, oftentimes, the Word that we need to declare is not found in the text. <laughs> but let me show you how this, this uh, ministry of John in these few verses is actually an offer of grace. It is actually an offer of grace from God. Well, he appears in the wilderness. Let's start there. He appears and he's baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Where have we heard in the wilderness before? In the very previous verse. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. So here we have John is unequivocally connected with that messenger that's sent from God that was, pro that was predicted 
um, foretold in the prophet Isaiah and Malachi and in other places. And, he, and where is he located? He is located in the wilderness. This is the place that is away from the cities. It's away from the populations. It's away from life. You don't go make a home in the wilderness. Well, some people made homes in the wilderness. Some people thought, well, if we just get away from the world and all that it is and go out, maybe we can build homes out here. Maybe we can set up tents or, or build houses or, or live in the caves and live off the land and just be away from it all. That'll, that'll protect us. That'll purify us. Um, people didn't realize that they were taking their sins with them into the wilderness just being in the wilderness is not enough. Just saying, I'm not part of the world, I'm not part of that stuff, is not enough. But the people did go to John. What did, why did they go? Because there was an offer of grace. They saw that, yes, we live in the cities Yes, we live in the populated places. The places that, that everybody lives and works. They, they knew that all around them, the message of the world was sin, was do it your own way, do it this way, do it that way. We see that, we see that today too. I mean, it's, the world is all around us. We are in the world. You just, all you have to do is turn on your television for a few minutes and you realize the values of the world, the values that they're communicating to us are not God's. All we have to do is have a, a few conversations with people who are far from God and to, to realize that, wow, that's, that's where are we? I know, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is, this is, this is a world that, that has no room for truth, has no room for God. The people recognized that. They saw that. They heard this message, and they heard this offer of grace from God, and they came running to the wilderness. Okay, why is that a big deal? You may be wondering... So why, why wilderness? What's the big deal about the wilderness? Is it just separation from, from the rest of the world? In a, in a sense, yes. But it's more than that. Because the wilderness was, was a motif of the Old Testament. The wilderness was the place where God's people went when they left Egypt. When they left that place, the place that God himself had judged, and said, I am the one true God. Not the gods of Egypt. Not the gods you worshipped there. I'm going to take you out of that. And what did he do? He brought them into the wilderness where they heard from him, where they received instructions from him, where they learned to be his people, where God adopted them as his family. Hosea Chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's referring to the people of Israel there. And he's saying that that's where the Israelites and the Hebrews, they became my people. That's the place. The wilderness is the place where people connect with God. Where they become His. 
But God's people rebelled. Hosea 5.4 said, said that they cannot return to me. <laughs> their sins, their rebellion, have made it impossible for them to come back to me. So what does God say He's going to do? God said, you, you heard that in the, in the reading earlier, in Hosea 2.14, that God was going to allure them, woo them into the wilderness, away from their sins, away from their rebe rebellion. He was going to woo them back so that they could become His people once again. And then He promised that they would return to Him. Well, return, that's what repentance is all about. Repentance, it it's actually comes from a really cool Greek word, metanoia. That's kind of fun. Impress your friends at parties with the word metanoia. It means to turn away, to do that U-turn, to get off of that highway. You're going the wrong direction. Get off of there, take that exit, and get on the right track, the right path. And for God's people... It had that connotation of returning back to Him. They had strayed. They had rebelled. God is a good God. He's a faithful God. But they had rebelled against Him. They had gone their own way and they needed to return to Him. They needed to come back to, his, to be His people. They needed to repent, to turn, and they needed to confess. And that's what we see the people doing. John was a preaching a or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So all the people came. They were baptized by Him confessing their sins. They got the message. They got the message that, that God was coming. We better prepare. Why, how do we do that? We prepare by confessing our sins, getting right with Him, admitting, acknowledging, saying, this is who I really am. Warts and all. This is what I have hiding under the bed, stashed in the closet. This is who I am, confessing that's, that we are sinners, that we need forgiveness of sins. And so he did that by offering them baptism. Here's, the, uh, here's how it's a grace from God. It was God's idea, not John's. Because John comes as a prophet proclaiming, announcing, some translations preaching, baptism. A baptism of repentance. That you need to be initiated into a new life. A new community. A new way of being. And that's what baptism was. It's a, it's a distinctly new kind of baptism that John was offering, but it's very similar to what, uh, what the Jewish religion did at this time. There were people, not born Jewish, who said, you know what? You're, you really do have the one true God. I want to worship Him too. I want to follow Him too. What do I need to do? And they say, well, you need to get circumcised and you need to do this. You follow the... Old Testament laws, and you do all those things. Yes, but they began to baptize initiates, proselytes, into the Jewish faith. 
It's a very interesting thing they, did, they would do. And so they took non-Jews and they baptized them and they brought them in. And then there were some who used baptism as more of a ritual cleansing, something that they did kind of over and over again. It was, for, for them, it was kind of one of those, those um, religious rites that they would do. But the interesting thing about John and the baptism that he was proclaiming was repentance and forgiveness of sins. But look who was coming. All the country. All Jerusalem. This was a baptism for all the people. Whether you were Jewish or not. Whether you believed or not. You may have thought, well, I'm a, I, I'm a good follower of God. The one true God. I was born this way. I, I was born in this family. I'm from this nationality. I've done everything I've needed to do to be right with the Old Testament God. But John was saying, you need to repent. This baptism was offered to all people. It's a grace that God was giving to, to all. It was offered so that people could get right with the God who was coming. So they preached it, he preached it, and they responded. Hosea 6 Verses 1 and 2 begins with, Come, let us return to the Lord. After, after all of the talk in, in, in that particular prophetic book about, about we can't return to Him because our sins are too, are too many. And then God's saying, no, I'm, Well, I'm going to woo them back. I'm going to allure them. I'm going to entice them to come back to me because I'm going to love them and take care of them. The re proper response in that prof from that prophet was, come, let us do this. Let us repent. Let us turn back to God. Let us come away from the world in its particular mindset. Let's, let's choose repentance. This, is a, uh, this was a call for a radical new mindset. Especially for people who thought they were good. Thought they were right. They thought they had it all together. Oh, well, we believe in God, but now you're telling me I need to repent? What is this all about? It wasn't just for the people who thought they were in. It was for all of us. And in fact, it's still for all of us. Repentance is something that believers still do. We're still being refined. We're still seeing sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. We're still going after God. It's like reorienting our thinking constantly. Reorienting our thinking to this new way of life, this new reality. That God has come. We must respond to Him. Repentance, confession, belief. So for us, whether you have been following Jesus for years and years or, or whether you've never put your faith in Him, repentance is still the key to following after Him. Repentance is still the key to, to experiencing 
the blessings that he brings with him. So that begs the question, will it be worth it? Is it worth us following after him? Seeking him? Well, he says this. He preached, after me comes he who is mightier than I. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John appeared as a prophet of God to come. John appeared to offer grace from God. John appeared to announce the Spirit of God. John comes and he says he's mightier than I. (laughs) He is mightier than I. He is greater. He is stronger. He is more important in every way possible. And I already mentioned before that he said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. So who is this one who is coming? Sounds like a man because he's wearing sandals. But that could also be just a metaphor, right? There's no mention in verses 2 to 8 of a man per se. But there is one There's a person. He, 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 he. We have verses 2 to 3 saying that it's they're preparing the way for the Lord. They're preparing the way for God to come. Certainly, he's mightier, he is greater than John. This entire passage, this entire text is focused not on John, Although he's appearing on the scene and he's the one preaching and he's baptizing. But the whole passage is focused on God. John's not worthy. He's not worthy to... Enti- What's the, what, was the, what was the image there? I don't know if you've ever untied somebody's shoes or done something with it. Feet are kind of nasty. They're, they're kind of nasty in general. And that may not be your thing. It, you know, it wasn't, the th- it wasn't the thing for people to do in this time either. <laughs> in fact, feet were dirty and nasty and gross that to touch another's feet or their sandals was so menial of a task that not even Jewish slaves would do it. Like, you wouldn't make your Jewish brother or sister untie your sandals. You'd be like, this is such a nasty job, you know, even though you're my slave, it's, it's too nasty for even you. Well, we need to find a good foreigner to do this. We need to find one of those Greeks or one of those Canaanites or, or somebody from, from Tyre or Sidon or, or from some other culture to do that job. It's so gross. And John says, I am not even worthy to do the worst of the worst job. That is how unworthy unworthy I am. Not Not that he was too good for that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not worthy to do that. Here's somebody who comes with all authority. Here's some somebody who comes to to bring truth in a way that to bring truth in a way that I could never explain to you. In fact, I have baptized you with water, he says. 
but He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's not demeaning water baptism. He's not saying that the baptism doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. Or that once this, this one appears, once God comes then to baptize with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to need baptism anymore. He's not even teaching about a, a new kind of theology, a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about some kind of weird thing, a mystical thing, or something that happens after you believe, like a second experience of salvation. He's not even talking about that. He's, he's trying to draw a distinction between what he was called to do, and what he did, and what his ministry was, and what God himself would do. In fact, what only God could do. That is to send His Spirit to baptize with the Holy Spirit is to kind of, it's replaying many of the uh, many of the Old Testament uh, prophecies about the Holy Spirit. One of them comes from Joel. He I will send my spirit out on all flesh and they will prophesy. They will, they will see visions and have dreams and all of that. But the prophet Isaiah explains us in some pretty explicit terms about the Holy Spirit. Um, Isaiah chapter 32 verse 15 says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And he says again in Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And he, he mentions sending the Spirit multiple times in the prophecy of Isaiah. Who's doing the pouring out? Who's doing the sending? Is it the messenger? Is it John? John is reiterating, this is God. This is God work. This is what He does. He pours out His Spirit. He baptizes, to use the same terminology that He's been using throughout, um, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. This is God who is coming. So, John preached, verse 7. He preached, meaning he announced or proclaimed, that one is coming who's greater than what you have now. One is coming who will do more than you have experienced now. The whole point of John's ministry and his appearance was to elevate God. Are you ready for Him? That was, the, that was the question that he was asking. Are you ready for God? Is your life ready for Him? Are you prepared for Him to be in your life? The big idea. Here, if I just had to sum it up, kind of sum up some of these other points into one, is that John appeared to prepare us. Prepare us for God. He appeared. He, he wore camel's hair. He wore leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. He, he baptized in the wilderness. He called people to repent. He baptized all of them. He said, you all need to repent. Every one of you. He said, he's mightier than I. I'm unworthy to even do the most menial task for him. 
I baptized you with water so that you could repent and receive forgiveness of your sins. But he's coming to do something greater. God himself was coming. So if you were unfamiliar with the story, let me just ask you this question. If you just stepped back from the story and you just saw these verses and you went, who in the world is... How is this going to ha- How is God going to come to His people? If you didn't know that it was dropped right in the middle of this gospel of the good, that's the, the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, your expectations would be like, holy cow, God Himself is going to appear? And you would be right. That's exactly what He wants us to think. We see that and we start thinking, oh yeah, yeah, let's get on to the miracles and stuff. Let's get on to what Jesus taught. But Mark wants us to reflect on this right now. That the one who is coming is no mere man. When the Christ comes, it signals God Himself is here. And it signals that that history as we know it is over. Something so significant has happened here. The world will never be the, cha- the, the same again. And if we make it personal and consider what that means for us, when Christ comes, when He makes Himself known to us as the God of the universe, not a mere person, not a mere man, it changes everything for us too. We cannot simply ignore it. We cannot be passive and go... Hmm, Jesus, okay. He's calling us to see that Jesus is God in the flesh and that one way or another, our lives have to change. What shall we do? In the next messages, we see Jesus come on the scene and we see Him more fully Right now, Mark wants us to recognize that this one who's coming comes with authority, comes with power, comes with an offer of grace. What are we to do? Repent of our old life, our old ways, and turn to Him. Those of us who have come to faith in Christ then hear this call to repent and go, there's still stuff that I need to let go of. There are still things that are keeping me from following after Jesus and learning Jesus as I should. Ultimately, the message is to us and how we prepare for Him is by being born again. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Jesus makes clear in this conversation that He had with a Uh, a a Jewish leader, a Jewish authority. You have to be born again. You You have to come to God through faith in Him. He changes you. He makes you a new person. It's something that only God can do by His Spirit. And when He does that, He makes us into a new person. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creature or creation. That's what He's offering to us. He's offering to the world through us. Maybe some of us need to, to take a cue from John. 
and follow in John's footsteps, being one who's announcing and proclaiming this message, while at the same time, we're following hard after Jesus and we're repenting along the way. How are we prepared? Are you prepared? Are you ready for God?